benefit of experimental jurisprudence is that we're able to bring some data to test assumptions that are already in the law or that have been made by judges or jurists or scholars. And so what we can do is kind of highlight the fact that these assumptions are built into the law and then show that where they might differ from the way that ordinary people think. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we'll be discussing experimental jurisprudence, which is an emerging field that uses empirical methods, particularly from the cognitive sciences, to clarify important concepts in the law. For example, scholars in this field will conduct experiments to try to understand what regular people make of legal concepts, like what is reasonable, or when a contract should be enforceable. The hope is that using experimental evidence can inject some empirical rigor into legal analysis and help lawyers, judges, and legal scholars sure up their assumptions. Here to help us understand this topic is Rosanna Summers, who is a Bigelow Fellow at the University of Chicago Law School and a leading scholar in the field of experimental jurisprudence. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, starting very broadly, what is experimental jurisprudence? Experimental jurisprudence is an emerging field that uses empirical methods, that is, um, techniques from psychology or cognitive science, to clarify core concepts in law. So concepts like consent, concepts like causation, reasonableness, you name it, we study it using um, survey methods and experiments. And this idea of using the cognitive sciences to inform our understanding of the law Is that a new idea or has it been around for a while? I think that experimental jurisprudence is similar to um, law and psychology, which is maybe a broader field that looks at um, how, you know, the way we think and our intuitions and attitudes um, might influence the law. But experimental jurisprudence is slightly more targeted towards um, analytic and conceptual questions in law. So um, whereas law and psychology might ask a question like, you know, how does implicit bias affect judges or something like that? Experimental jurisprudence might ask, what is bias? Um, what is fairness? Um, and use um, techniques from from psychology or cognitive science to study that question, but it's actually kind of an analytic or philosophical question, but we're using methods to understand how ordinary people tackle that question. It seems experimental jurisprudence is often mentioned together with legal realism. Uh, How are the concepts distinct and how are they similar? The concepts are similar in that we're asking not just what does the doctrine say or what would a formalistic understanding of the rules in play imply, but we're going behind sort of the stated rationales for things, um, you know, opinions in the law or doctrines, and examining what might be driving the outcomes. What's different about it from legal realism, though, is that we really are committed to using the scientific method. So um, we will use, for instance, random assignment to try out, for instance, how do people react to two different cases that we've written to differ on just one factor. So if we just edit one piece of the fact pattern and we give out these two very closely um uh, matched cases to, you know, a randomly assigned or randomly allocated uh, two groups of people and see how these two groups react to these two different scenarios, then we can draw some kind of conclusions about whether that factor that we manipulated is affecting their decisions. And we're really committed to that methodology as being the way to understand how people make decisions about the law. And so uh, I would say that we're within the umbrella of legal realism, but the technique is very specific. So what are the principal benefits of using experimental evidence in making legal decisions? Or put another way, um, how is the law currently failing by not incorporating experimental evidence? 
One benefit of experimental jurisprudence is that I think we're able to bring some data to test assumptions that are already in the law or that um, have been made by judges or jurists or scholars. And so, um, you know, I, I point again to our close cousin, experimental philosophy, where the thought has been that, you know, um, I, I'm not a philosopher, this isn't my own field, but my understanding of the debate has been something like, you know, when 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 philosophers make claims, often um, one of the premises in their claims is something about uh, an intuition that they have that they assume to be widely shared by the readers or by other people that they think will persuade them um, to come along uh, on the conclusions that flow from that intuition. But what experimental philosophy brings to the table is this idea that you can test that intuition, see how widely shared it is. And that might help you understand if, for instance, there, there's a, there could be, for instance, a difference between how ordinary people approach a thought experiment and um, philosophers do, or how elites think about something and sort of the ordinary people. Or in our case with experimental jurisprudence, how legally trained people or judges think about certain questions and ordinary people. And so um, what we can do is kind of highlight the fact that these assumptions are built into the law and then um, uh, show that where they might differ from the way that ordinary people think. One thing that I think is really exciting about experimental jurisprudence in particular is that I think the level of theorizing that we're starting to do is pretty ambitious and pretty exciting. So let me give an example of what I mean by that. So um, I mentioned earlier that we're interested in questions like, what is reasonableness? What is consent? And when we answer questions like that, we're not just asking in one particular case with a particular fact pattern, was there consent here or was there reasonableness here? That would be interesting. You know, my friend Kevin Tobia, as part of his experimental jurisprudence project on reasonableness, has asked people questions like, you know, imagine that um, a landlord needs to give reasonable notice before entering a tenant's dwelling. How long is reasonable notice? And you can learn from doing a survey of ordinary people that people think reasonable notice is about 32 hours. That's sort of interesting, but Kevin goes beyond that. And what he shows is that even, you know, maybe you care about landlords and tenants and reasonable notice, but we can say something much more ambitious and systematic about reasonableness judgments beyond that. And what he shows is that when people, ordinary people are assessing reasonableness, they're intuitively applying a hybrid concept between what they think is statistically common and what they think is prescriptively good. So in the landlord case, if you ask people, how much time should landlords give? How much notice? How many hours should they give notice? Um, they say about 35 hours. When you ask how how many hours do you think landlords tend to give, like in real life, people say about 28 hours, but reasonableness is in between 28 and 35. People say reasonable notice is 32. But he shows that not just with landlords. He shows that again and again and again with different cases, different contexts. And so we're building a theory of reasonableness to the ordinary person as this hybrid concept that goes beyond just one case. And my, uh, my area of study is consent, and I try to do the same thing. So I ask questions like, how much information do you need to have in order for you to give valid, real, morally transformative consent? Meaning consent that actually converts behavior that's normally wrongful into behavior that's perfectly fine. And, you know, I look at questions like, if a doctor lies to a patient about something the patient really cares about, is that consent, if the patient says yes, after relying on the doctor's deception? And, you know, we learn from that what kinds of information people think doctors can lie to patients about. But that's that's not, you know, as interesting as what we learn in a cross-domain kind of way, which is what I find in, in one of my papers, which is that, wow, when people are judging consent intuitively, they have this idea that 
Um, the kinds of lies or deceptions that undermine consent are the lies that tend to go to the heart or nature of the activity in question. And I find it's not that people think that lies that um, are important to the person who's being lied to are the ones that undermine consent. Rather, it's these ones that seem to go to the core of the activity. That's a theoretical innovation and a sort of cross-domain um, insight about human psychology that I think is really exciting and ambitious and that brings us beyond just looking at, in a particular case, oh, survey people and see what they think consent is. We're really learning something broad. So you and a number of other scholars in the field have done a lot of experiments on concepts like reasonableness or consent that we think about in the law. Uh, based on those findings and findings of people in the experimental jurisprudence field, more generally, are there any areas of law that are way off from what experimental data suggests the law should be? As in, is the law in any particular field really off base based on what the data suggests? Well, that's a really interesting question because it raises whether what the right answer should be. Is that the same thing as what ordinary people think it is? And I actually don't believe that. And I think as experimental jurisprudence, like as a field, I think we are struggling to answer what is the relevance of ordinary people's intuitions. And the way that I would explain it is the following. So I don't actually personally believe that by understanding what ordinary people think consent is, we learn what consent really is or what it should be or what the law should say it is. I think an analogy can be drawn to um, really exciting research on how ordinary people think about um, free will, genetics, heritability, for instance, what causes crime? Could it be caused by, you know, could you say your brain made you do it or your genes made you do it? If we did a bunch of surveys and we found out that ordinary people had certain understandings of what kinds of behaviors were genetically determined and what kinds of things were not, that wouldn't actually tell us anything about genes, right? Only scientists and geneticists can tell us the truth about genes. We're not going to believe what ordinary people think instead of the actual scientific truth. But, you know, determinations of free will and blame and responsibility and all of those things are social phenomena. And by understanding how ordinary people think about genetics and essentialism and determinism and all this stuff, we can understand that social phenomenon better. And that social phenomenon, I think, is really important for the law. And so I think that experimental jurisprudence, even if by clarifying these concepts that the law uses and, and figuring out and theorizing how ordinary people approach those kinds of concepts, by doing that, I think we learn about the human mind and like the way we organize our yeah our understanding of various legal concepts and moral concepts and social concepts that's valuable even if those aren't the right sort of thing to answer your question about whether experimental jurisprudence has documented some disconnects between how ordinary people think about certain concepts and the law i think the answer is yes but we've also documented some really exciting and interesting similarities as well. So um, in, on the first side, in my research on consent, I find that ordinary people tolerate much more fraud and think that fraud is much less um, undermining of consent uh, than the law tends to think. The law tends to think that, look, if you're lied to, that uh, that means by the person who's seeking your consent about something that matters for your consent boy, that means that they probably don't really have your your true, valid, genuine consent, and we shouldn't treat it as such. But ordinary people tend to think that you can consent even when you're being lied to. So that's a pretty big disconnect. But 
On the other hand, I also find that, you know, even as we say that the law has this view that fraud will destroy consent, and there are all these really, you know, dramatic quotes from from cases about the vitiating effect of fraud, that when you actually look at the case law, it's a lot more muddy than um, that statement and that sort of legal theory makes it sound. And so an interesting tantalizing possibility is that, you know, our common sense intuition, the experimental jurisprudence discoveries can help us actually understand our laws better. And that's what um, uh, Josh Noeb and Scott Shapiro argue about proximate causation, that uh, we can understand the way that courts are thinking about and defining proximate cause better by looking at how ordinary people think about causation than by looking at how philosophers or physicists have defined causation, that the psychological theory predicts the case is better than the other theories. I think it would be helpful to hear an example of how experimental jurisprudence works in practice. Uh, so you mentioned that you've done a lot of research into this question of what constitutes reasonable consent in a Fourth Amendment voluntary search context. For example, a police officer asked to search your car voluntarily and, and you give consent to that search. So can you tell us a little bit about how your experiments in this area help us answer the question of what constitutes reasonable consent? Sure. I have a couple of lines of research looking at consent to searches by police. One is um, giving out scenarios describing um, police searches and asking people, you know, do you think that the civilian consented in this case, given that the police, for instance, lied about what they're looking for and trying to understand what sorts of police deception will uh, be seen as undermining a citizen's consent to a search. And there I find, as I mentioned earlier, that ordinary people seem to think that you consent you can consent even when you're being lied to about pretty serious stuff by the police, which is um, not the law in every jurisdiction, although some jurisdictions do permit a lot of police deception. I also have another line of work that's um, uh, more behavioral. So I bring people into the lab, and this is with Vanessa Bonds, who's a social psychologist at Cornell. We bring people into the lab, and we see what they do consent to versus what they think they would consent to. So you come into our lab, and we say, you're, you're here for a study, and we say to you, before we begin the study, could you please unlock your phone and hand it to me? I'd like to take it outside the room for a moment to check for some things. We don't specify what we're going to be looking for. We just see whether people unlock their um, personal cell phones and let us search them. Um, and then in the control group, we bring in a separate group of people who meet the same experimenter and they sit in the same chair and they're asked, you know, if we were to ask you to please unlock your phone and hand it to me, da, 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 would you hand over your phone? And also, would a reasonable person hand over their phone? And there, what Vanessa and I find is that whereas most of the control group thinks that they would refuse that search, that is only about 14% of people say a reasonable person would let a researcher search through their phone in this case, when we actually ask people, 97% of them allow us to search their phones. So there's a very large disconnect between what people actually consent to versus what they think they would consent to. And we um, ask follow-up surveys um, and ask people how free they felt to refuse, how pressured they felt. And interestingly, the control group imagines feeling freer to say no than the treatment group, the ones who are actually asked, report feeling. And so there's this disconnect where you think it'd be easy to say no, you think you'd say no, but when you're actually in the situation, 
situation, boy, is it a lot harder than you thought, and you end up surrendering your phone. And so we use that finding um, to kind of explain the social psychology of compliance and how hard it is to say no to things, especially face-to-face requests, and use that to sort of shed some light on our laws and, and even challenge and critique the way that the law conceptualize, conceptualizes voluntariness in police searches and the way that we have third-party fact-finders determining whether a reasonable person would feel free or feel coerced as, you know, potentially biased by this uh, social perception phenomenon that we've documented. That's very interesting. So um, in other words, you found that there's a gap between what people believe to be reasonable consent when they're removed from the situation and how they would actually behave in practice if they were put to the test. They'd be much more willing to give consent to a search. So based on that finding and and the experimental evidence that, uh, that supports it, what do you want courts and legislatures to do with that information? How, how should they be changing their behavior based on what these, this experimental data suggests? It's a really good question. I think it's hard to say at what level um, would findings like this uh, imply that someone is actually coerced. Um, you know, just because 97% of people do something doesn't mean that there was coercion present, that they couldn't say no. In fact, three people out of 100 did say no. So it's not impossible, but it does raise the... Um, you know, the question of who's deciding whether someone has consented. Is it the person who was in the situation or is it someone who wasn't there? And if it's someone who wasn't there, which is generally how we do it in this uh, legal system, is there a worry that they might systematically overestimate how easy it was to say no to the police or no to the employer or no to whoever? And um, I think it's not just our research. A wealth of social psychology research suggests that we are kind of inattentive to or underappreciative of social pressure. We tend to see people as autonomous agents who, um, you know, are to blame for their own decisions when, you know, when it happens to us, we're much more willing to recognize the pressures, the situational forces that shape our behavior. And so if you have this bias where people, you know, when we're judging others, think that, you know, you totally could have said no and it's your fault and you were agentic. But when we're judging ourselves, we think, whoa, wait a second, this I was being pushed around by all of these forces, that that suggests there might be a bit of unfairness in the way that we set up um, decisions about, you know, having um, third parties judging whether someone's behavior was reasonable. Gotcha. So a number of these experiments you're describing, whether it's your work on consent searches or other experiments in the field, seem to be getting at this idea of reasonableness, uh, this concept that we often use in the law. Uh, And I'm wondering if when courts use terms like reasonableness, it's less about describing what real people would do in a given situation and more a shorthand for the type of behavior we want to encourage, that courts want to encourage. So this concept comes up a lot in tort law, for example, like the reasonable person would not engage in this risky behavior or the reasonable person would take a certain amount of precautions. Um, So I'm wondering if by conducting experiments into looking at what actual people do uh, and what they consider reasonable, maybe that's kind of missing the point. Like take the voluntary search context. Maybe when courts say this is reasonable consent, they really are saying, you know, we want to encourage people uh, to cooperate with police and we're going to call that behavior reasonable. And it's less about whether an average person would feel free to consent. 
Oh, it's a great question. I think that um, this is another place where we can contrast experimental jurisprudence with other theories. So for instance, law and economics, which might say, okay, what are courts doing with reasonableness? Maybe maybe it's some kind of efficiency analysis. We want to encourage efficiency. So we're, we're going to think about, you know, um, how to think about like costs and benefits. Legal realists might say something like, well, you know, courts, the judges want to help police get their work done and um, they want to encourage law abiding behavior and they're not super sympathetic to, you know, these groups that feel that their civil liberties are being infringed and there's sort of like a political or ideological story. I think both of those are really powerful theories and there's support for them. Uh, a third theory though is, is something that Kevin Tobia has uncovered via the experimental jurisprudence method which shows that um, when we judge reasonableness, we are both caring about what ordinary people do, as you asked, and we're caring about what they ought to do, as you also suggested. It's a hybrid concept that's an intermediary between those two concepts. And so what that suggests is it's not necessarily just an ideological or political judgment that judges are making. And it's not necessarily an efficiency analysis. It's like a cognitive process of averaging two types of norms together, statistical descriptive norms against moral prescriptive norms. So to apply that to your question about, you know, I show that most people comply with a search request, whereas they think that they shouldn't uh, comply or something like that. At least they say a reasonable person wouldn't and they wouldn't. Um, you know, what's reasonable? Is it is it what most people do? Is it what people think they ought to do? I mean, Kevin's research suggests that a person who's just told apply reasonableness is going to smush those two together and say something in the middle. So as you mentioned, experimental jurisprudence often relies a lot on uh, experiments in the cognitive science, like uh, psychology experiments. Um, and that field has come under a lot of scrutiny lately uh, for a few reasons, including the fact that it might not be that easy to extrapolate findings in uh, psych experiments to the real world. Often experiments are done on small sample sizes using skewed populations that are often comprised largely of undergrads. And furthermore, the field, as I understand it, is going through what's been called the replication crisis, the idea that a lot of old psychology findings based on experiments that uh, have been treated as you know, received wisdom are, are very difficult to replicate. And, and maybe the conclusions from those old experiments is, are not as strong as we might have believed. So I'm curious if those possible limitations in the field of experimental psychology uh, give you any pause or, or inform how much confidence you have for findings in the experimental jurisprudence context? I think, um, well, I'm not, so let me take it piece by piece. So um, one one big question about survey research, psychological research, is whether the sample that the study is conducted on generalizes to the population that you want to make a claim about. So you're right that a lot of psych research is done on undergrads who sign up for these studies um, or on easily accessible, we call them convenience samples, you know, people who are already signed up online to do surveys for pay, uh, you know, some of them even for a living almost, they do so many of them. Uh, are those people similar to the people you're trying to generalize to? And I think it just sort of depends on who you're trying to generalize to. So it might not be such a good idea to try to generalize to what judges decide because judges are experts. And, you know, just because a group of uh, ordinary people makes a, makes a certain kind of conclusion or judgment about a little scenario you give them doesn't mean that an expert who's seen hundreds or thousands of examples over their career is going to fall prey to the same kinds of biases. This is the um, subject of Jeff Reklinski, who's a professor at Cornell Law School, 
this is the subject of his line of um, research. He has a number of studies asking whether phenomena, psychological phenomena that we see in ordinary people, things like implicit bias, hindsight bias, the, t- the tendency to think that once something's already happened, to think it was inevitable and foreseeable from the start, whether those kinds of cognitive um, phenomena are present in judges. And, um, you know, he's got access to that population um, to be able to survey them. And his work is really interesting. I, I commend it to you. Um, uh, so, but if you're, I mean, a lot of our research in experimental jurisprudence is not really talking about what we think judges will do, um, although that is some of it. My research on consent, I'm just as interested in what ordinary people do when they think they've consented. Um, and so I think that the population mismatch isn't such a big problem, although it's certainly worth studying empirically whether different groups view things like consent or causation or reasonableness or responsibility or any of these things differently. On the problem of, um, you're describing what we call the replication crisis uh, in psychology that some of the most um, sort of classic studies haven't held up over time when other people have tried to use the same uh, experimental methods and designs, they haven't been able to produce the same effect. I think that that is a concern that some of the the original research might have been done with, you know, too small of a sample or just been done poorly, or it could have been a a fluke, a false positive. So the solution to all of that, I think, is to just do more research and collect more data. And with time, we will, we will see whether, um, whether those findings hold up. Certain reforms, I think, are making it more um, easy to trust findings. So there's been a huge problem of the journals that publish the research. You know, every academic wants their work published in a journal. That's the currency of our um, career, of our profession, that the journals, you know, have a bias towards publishing really exciting findings. And, you know, if you fail to replicate someone else's original research or you get a boring old null finding, no difference, we found nothing that, um, you know, no one will publish it. And that creates uh, distortion in the evidence base. Um, so there's been movements to try to uh, have people either pre-commit to their methods so they can't, you know, hide them when it turns out that your experiment was totally, you know, a null finding and it didn't confirm your hypotheses. There's reforms of the journals to make sure that they publish, you know, that kind of research, even if it's not as exciting as the kinds of stuff that they tend to want to publish. There's more open data. So people sharing their, um, their data and methods to make it easier to replicate and, you know, just a bunch of reforms. So I'm optimistic for the future of the field. That makes sense. So I I also wanted to return to something we discussed a little earlier regarding how some of the experiments in this area show a gap between what people believe would be reasonable and what is reasonable in the experimental empirical context. Uh, I'm curious what's more important uh, for the law to reflect. Should the law try to reflect what people perceive uh, when they're removed from it as a fair or reasonable outcome? Or should the law be more concerned with getting the right answer, uh, the empirically right answer, based on what whatever experiments can tell us? I think it's a really deep question. And I sort of think that it has to be like a chicken and egg kind of relationship where the law should reflect what ordinary people think. For instance, what do ordinary people think is consent or think is morally valid um, ways of treating each other? Um, the law should, in some ways, accord with what people think is fair and moral. On the other hand, the law can shape what people think is fair and moral. So if, you know, 
it's totally possible that people have a moral intuition or, or, or a cognitive bias that leads them to, you know, a certain pattern of thinking that is dysfunctional or, you know, maybe it's prejudicial or maybe it's just lazy um, or just inaccurate or problematic for it could be a number of things. It could just be inconsistent. So our patterns of thinking, um, you know, I believe that they derive largely from um, adaptive selective processes. So there's probably some, you know, evolutionary reason why we have these patterns of thinking, even if I can't pinpoint what they are, we can conjecture about them. So there's probably some function to them. But that doesn't mean that they're good, uh, all things considered, maybe they're a remnant of a different time in, uh, you know, our evolutionary past, maybe they're good most of the time, but they misfire in certain cases, um, that sort of thing. So I won't defend them as, you know, just because it's natural means that it's good. I think the law should try to constrain those kinds of impulses and ways of thinking. But there's no question that if the law uh, moves too far away from what ordinary people think, then we have this disconnect that can breed new kinds of problems, like people thinking the law doesn't reflect them, people feeling that the law is unfair or illegitimate. And so it's a, I think it's got to be conceived as this circular or chicken, or chicken and egg kind of relationship between morality, uh, moral intuition, psychology, and the way the law deals with people. One critique I've heard about using empirical methods in the law is that sometimes it can lead to a type of hubris that when you inject, you know, empirical data into a legal question, that changes the way that the shape of the debate. And sometimes it feels like, well, the data suggests that this is the right answer. So that's the answer that the law has to reflect. And maybe in reality, legal questions are much more of judgment calls, uh, not right or wrong answers, uh, I've often heard this this take about you know sometimes the the way in which antitrust law has changed um, through the use of law and economics that you know the government can't intervene here it can't break up this monopoly or block this merger because the data suggests that would be a bad idea uh, whereas maybe it's really just a judgment call so do you think there's a do you think there's a risk of that type of hubris in using experimental data? And is that something that lawmakers or courts should be considering? I would hope that um, it would the empirical evidence would be offered with the spirit of, you know, the scientific inquiry, which is that these are falsifiable hypotheses. We have evidence that supports them, but new evidence could emerge that undermines them and that there would be transparency around the strength of the evidence. And I mean, I know that um, not every legal actor is going to be a scientist, but hopefully the level of sort of scientific literacy or numeracy or just facility with evaluating the evidence is going to be, you know, widespread enough that people can not just defer, but actually understand and question the research. But I think it's a real, it's a real concern that um, is worth taking seriously. What's interesting about experimental jurisprudence, particularly as a field is that because so many of um, the people working in this area, not me particularly, but um, others are philosophers or are trained in philosophy, that they are paying, I think, attention to some of these more moral questions. Uh, I won't call those legal questions. That, that's separate about what's the right policy, but that it's not just purely about um, just sort of coming in and um uh, you know, sort of slavishly um, obeying numbers, that there's a real thought to why we do it, what it's for, and what it can't do. I mean, that's really important, knowing what what is an empirical question and what just really isn't. What's a, what's not an empirical question? What's a question about morals or or just about like who we are as a country or you know as a as a people? That those I think are worth taking from a different angle than just what is the data say. 
This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshiLREV and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play.